Hey, Tim, it's Chris Reback. How are you? Hey, Chris, I'm fine. How are you? Good. Sorry, the book hasn't been getting much publicity. I'm really happy to do whatever I can here to help you out. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Everybody has to play their part, right? Uh, <laughs> it sounds like maybe, are you uh, getting settled or are you are you good to go? Yep, just give me 30 seconds. Make sure I stop my incoming of uh, emails and everything. Uh, well, if, you, if you can just tell Trump not to tweet anything for the next 30 minutes, we should be okay. Seriously, man, I swear. If I could tell him not to tweet, then they would make me chief of staff tomorrow. <laughs> That's true. Um, and not okay, even yeah, not fine. even acting. You'd be, you'd be full. Mick would be out of luck. I'd be in there full time. Um, I'm good, man. Fire away. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Political Wire, which my friend Tegan Goddard updates nonstop. But did you know he's got a membership program that offers readers exclusive analysis, a trending news aggregator, and no advertising on his site? And for my podcast listeners, Tegan's got a special friends-only offer, 20% off an annual subscription. Just go to politicalwire.com slash Chris for your discount, and now to the podcast. What happened to the Republican Party? You've heard of it. One of the two major political collectives in America. The one that counts Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan among its heroes, if not North Stars. The modern GOP branded itself on ideals of fiscal responsibility, fighting dictators from the Soviet Union to Saddam Hussein, and personal morality. Today, of course, the U.S. deficit is more than $1 trillion. New Age dictators are our friends, and personal morality? Well, not so much. The GOP change has been swift, stark, and you might be led to believe all because of one person, Donald Trump. But is that true? Was Trump the cause or the most logical outcome? Perhaps more importantly, is there any going back? Is the GOP now the P.O.T., the party of Trump? Most simply, is the Republican Party dead? That's what I asked Tim Alberta, Politico magazine's chief political correspondent and author of American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Alberta's book is the most complete, thoughtful, and entertaining analysis to date of how we got here, of what happened to the Republican Party and whether Trumpism is its singular way forward. It's a great read. A lot has been written about Tim's book, most headlines focusing on Paul Ryan's quotes that the president knew nothing about government and the devil's bargain that Ryan and others made. But as you'll hear in today's conversation, the book is about much more than just that. You'll also hear Tim's answer to the question Democrats and Republicans all want to know, can Trump be beat in 2020? But before we begin, two items. First, make sure to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It offers my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, access to free books, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, please don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Several more of you did. Thank you. And it makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment and, if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Tim Alberta. Tim, thanks for joining. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So I've got to begin at the end, and I mean the very end of your book, because for whatever else you've written, and and we'll talk about much of it, I think you've written the nicest, most gracious, without being saccharine, acknowledgments I've ever read. And from reading your thanks to others, I mean, you seem like a good guy. Uh, I, I hope you don't ruin that in this conversation. I'll try my best not to. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I haven't 
been asked much about the acknowledgments on, on the official, you know, media blitz here. But yeah, I mean, it was important to me to make sure I, I pay all due respect and give all due credit to my wife who uh, sort of kept this thing afloat. When, Sweta? When, yes, my wife Sweta when, when uh, this whole thing was sort of in danger of sinking at a few different points and I was ready to pull my hair out. She was uh, the steadying force. All right. She was like, don't, don't pull out the hair, man. I, that's what I, you know, I married you for the hair. Don't pull that exactly. out. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. If I, if, if I, if I was bald, then I'd probably be out of a marriage. So yeah, she's been great. And, and I've got a lot, I've, I've been really lucky to have a lot of great friends and colleagues who have yeah. supported me over the years. And, uh, and obviously you know, I've got three little boys who I sort of wrote this book for to make sure that when they're my age, they've got some idea of, you know, what the heck happened during this very strange period of American history. So so let's talk about that, because you have outlined uh, what the heck has happened in this very strange time in American history. Um, the, the core of your argument around how Trump happened seems to have two parts. Um, one, the Republican Party had left itself susceptible to conquest. Those are your words. The battles within the party had weakened the GOP. And two, the country had evolved in distinct ways. You out outlined ideological, cultural, and demographic towards populism. I explain your thesis. Yeah, so I'll take the first part first. Uh, the, I think the Republican Party is an institution like anything else in, in American life that we think about, you know, uh, uh, organized religion, public education, the military, the media. The political parties are institutions, and it's important to recognize them as such. And it's also important to recognize that when an institution is weakened, as the party had been, and as any number of these other institutions have been uh, systemically over the past, you know, 30 to 40 years, many of them, then, you know, the, the, when the defenses go down, they are vulnerable to, to attack. And the Republican Party had been systemically weakened over a period of 20 years, probably, uh, with everything from, you know, court rulings on campaign finance to uh, just sort of the, the, the influx of outside money and the loss of confidence in the party as a competent, capable governing entity. The Republican Party was really, really weak by the time Trump came along. And, and the fact of the matter is, Chris, you know, look, a, a strong Republican Party does not get taken over in the way that it was in 2016. Donald Trump took advantage of a Republican Party that had been weakened, uh, that was vulnerable, susceptible to a takeover. And we're seeing some shades of that on the left now uh, in the Democratic Party. I think it's important to recognize that, sure, part of it is the infighting that I chronicle in the book that weakened the Republican Party. But it's also, you know, an unprecedented amount of outside money coming into politics as a result of court rulings and how that uh, shifts the, the center of gravity away from the party establishment itself, how you have social media and cable news and talk radio uh, sort of giving information to the base that does not always align with reality, certainly. And, and, and if nothing else, you have a lot of voters working off of different baselines of information and, and how that can complicate things. So there's any number of different explanations for it. But obviously, we, it's clear, and I try to lay this out in the book, that institutionally speaking, the Republican Party was just really, really weak and, and sort of beaten down by the time Trump came along. And he took advantage of that. And, and I think the second part of it is you do have this enormous amount of change happening during this 10-year period. And mm -hmm. it's frankly, it's so whiplash-inducing. There's so much change that it's hard for us to appreciate living through it in real time. It's probably going to take 
30 or 40 years of distance from it to, to appreciate just what has happened in this country culturally and technologically, socioeconomically and politically. And, and when you add it all up, when you think about you know millions of jobs lost in the manufacturing sector, when you think about everything from same-sex marriage becoming law of the land to fights over transgender bathrooms and, and mandating contraception coverage and all of the court cases with religious liberty groups, when you think about you know, the, the, the one party uh, moving far to the right and the other party beginning to move far to the left and the, the feelings of, you know, sort of ideological displacement that that leaves many voters with and certainly just the sense that, I think beneath all of it, that, that these parties have let the American people down, that these parties have not lived up to their promises, that they, that the political class and the well-connected are playing by one set of rules and everybody else is getting left behind and that the system is rigged against them. When you layer all of that on top of itself, man, it is a powder keg and it's, and it's ready to explode. And I don't think we should be surprised in retrospect, connecting all the dots, that it did explode. Yeah, the, the connecting, the retrospective connecting of the dots. I mean, I, I was explaining, I was describing to uh, a friend that you are retelling this story that we all know, we all lived through it, but you're connecting the dots and, and you're retelling it in such an engaging way that it, it feels like we're experiencing it kind of for the first time, which is uh, among the, the, the strengths of the, the book. Um, it's just such a, a great read. But with that historical look back, was Sarah Palin the canary in the GOP coal mine? I think she probably was, Chris. I, and, and think of it this way. You know, the Republican Party in the post-Reagan era had really become sort of intellectually complacent. I think many in the ruling class of the party just sort of took for granted that, mm. you know, that what was good for the elites and that was good for the stock market and that was good for the Wall Street Journal editorial page was inherently good for the American worker and good for the blue collar Republican voter out there in middle America. And that just wasn't the case. And there was an enormous sense and, and growing sense of backlash and resentment that was felt among the Republican base towards the powers that be. And I think there was maybe an acknowledgement of that, kind of a recognition of that, but it was really kind of, it was simmering below the surface. And, it, and, and Sarah Palin brought it, you know, to a full boil and then some. And, and I think Palin, for whatever anyone thinks about her politics or, or her personally, I think Palin was devastatingly effective in speaking to that disconnect, in, in highlighting just how angry and how frustrated so many ordinary Americans were with the government and with the party's establishment. And, you know, look, Palin flamed out pretty quickly, and, and we know that story. But, you know, for, for, for all of the punchlines about Sarah Palin and, and sort of how she had been turned into this caricature, I do think it's really important to recognize that she tapped into something long before anybody else did. And I don't think that there probably is a Donald Trump without a Sarah Palin. I certainly don't think there's a Tea Party without Sarah Palin, because I think those seeds had been planted and they were eventually harvested by, you know, a few different people, none more so than Donald Trump, obviously. And if there's not a Tea Party without Sarah Palin, is there also is there a Tea Party if the stimulus bill gets handled differently? Your your telling of that part of uh, the Obama 
years and his coming in and and the anticipation that Boehner and other Republicans had after that, um, you know, that that initial meeting when and then what ended up happening and and Obama talking in that first meeting and saying, well, you know, I can do these things because I won and repeating kind of a Nancy Pelosi line. Um, If that stimulus bill gets handled differently, does the Tea Party still happen? Look, we'll never know for sure, but I do think it's it's a given that sooner or later, given how bad the economy was, given some of these big cultural fights that began to consume more and more oxygen during the Obama years, I do think that sooner or later you would have seen this, you know, this really intense and kind of organic opposition to Obama on the right manifest itself. Uh, it may not have been as intense. It may not have been as organic. It may not have gained nearly as much media attention as the Tea Party did. But I do think that the conditions were right for the right to sort of rise up against Obama in the way that it did. But that having been said, Chris, I, I my, my, my gut is that it probably wouldn't have happened until later in his presidency, certainly, mm. uh, maybe not even until his second term. I don't know how different the uh, the eight-year period of Obama's presidency would have looked without the stimulus debacle, but I think that it would have looked pretty considerably different at, at, at the very least, because it's important to recognize that you had, you know, about 40 House Republicans at that point who were representing districts that Obama had carried. And these guys, you know, it's easy in retrospect to look back and say, oh, congressional Republicans were just looking to obstruct Obama at every turn. And some of them were, without question. But it's important to recognize that you had a lot of people who were terrified of Obama when he took office. A lot of Republicans who thought that this guy was going to destroy the GOP. He was coming in riding a 70 percent approval rating and he's got super majorities. And when they met with him before the inauguration, you know, he his rhetoric then really matched his campaign rhetoric, that he wasn't going to be a partisan, that he was going to govern from the middle. And there were a lot of Republicans at that time who thought, geez, if he does govern from the middle, then we are toast. And, and some of them used much more colorful language to, yeah. to describe it. Yeah. Bur- so I think burnt toast. Burnt toast, yes. <laughs> and, and, I think, and I think that when you consider in the full context of the time the passage of the stimulus and, and the lack of bipartisanship behind it and how hastily it was put together, and it really wasn't a very good legislative product in the way that it was rushed to the floor – there are a lot of Democrats I know from speaking with them who would like to have that back because they do feel that it was sort of an unforced error that if they had been able to get Republican fingerprints on that piece of legislation, then it wouldn't have just been Obama's economy that he had to own for the next seven years. Yeah, your, your retelling of that period, again, it's it's really powerful. And it did make me think, you know, again, about the whole situation, because you, you're right, the narrative is strongly and, and that, and you mentioned this event, the, the dinner, the, the night of the inauguration, and Mitch McConnell, and uh, I think Kevin McCarthy, and Paul Ryan was there and, and others. And, and we know that coming out of that, uh, particularly uh, McConnell, you know, saying that, that the goal was to make Obama a one-term president, et cetera. And, and that has dominated the narrative. And it, it can't be ignored. That certainly was the, the goal for uh, many of them. It was a stated goal. And yet at the same time, you document there were a number of uh, Republicans, including Eric Cantor, and uh, the team around him who were looking at what Obama was saying and doing and thinking, wait a minute, this guy actually could wipe out the GOP. 
Totally. And they're expecting it's important to recognize that that Obama's sort of a blank slate at that point. This is a guy who's been in Washington a very short period of time before he became president, not even one full Senate term. And they don't know exactly what to expect. They have his voting record in Congress. Sure, they have his voting record in the state house, But he just hasn't been around long enough for anybody to have a really firm sense on you know where he is ideologically what he what his preferred tactics are for passing legislation and when he meets with a lot of these republicans he says look you know uh, and i think obama even taking it a step further chris i i think obama politically was just a little bit naive in in believing that whatever package they threw together in those eight days between the inauguration and the passing on the house floor that that the American economy was in such bad shape and that Republicans were so desperate not to be seen as, you know, obstructing this this package that was going to be a shot in the army economy that I think Obama was convinced by some of the people around him. Look, don't waste your time messing around playing footsies with these Republicans. Uh, you're going to get some of them anyway. And the ones you aren't going to get, they were never going to be there in the first place. And I just think that it was it was not well handled by the administration. And again, some of the folks inside the administration, when they look back on it, I definitely think they wish they could handle it differently. Yeah, uh, it, it was interesting to read about. And, and you know, there certainly were uh, a number of Republicans, though, who, who I mean, they weren't going to go along with anything. And, and then you kind of document there were some who, who were looking for, um, you know, for an opportunity. So let's fast forward just a little bit. Um, and in some of the questions that your book has clearly raised, and, and I think that one quality that we all want to understand, were Republicans, and, and particularly the leaders, were they, given the way they talk now, given the things that are occurring now, given the takeover of the party by Trump, given something as simple as, you know, this week's news as you and I are talking is, you know, there's an agreement on uh, a, a new budget that will increase the deficit e- even more. Um, were those Republican leaders ever principled? And and I'm thinking about people like Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and, and the ones who ran for president, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. Did they believe what they were selling, fiscal responsibility, social conservatism, strong national defense? Because when you see what they support now, and this is the question of your book, you know, is it, you know, is he transformative or, or transitional? Um, it, it, it raises the question, did they ever believe what they were selling? You know, Chris, in my experience covering a lot of these folks, you always have some who are more sincere in their beliefs than others. And so I would say that some of these folks certainly were principled and, and some were less principled. But all of them, Republicans and Democrats, all of them are pretty elastic in their beliefs when it comes to sort of political opportunism. And what I mean by that is at the end of the day, when your party is in power, you are going to conduct yourself differently than when your party is out of power. And that's not to excuse any of these Republicans. I think I do a pretty exhaustive job in the book of having the before and after pictures of a lot of these folks who uh, were were saying and doing one thing when Obama was in office and saying and doing uh, something entirely different when Trump came on the scenes. And not just on on matters of policy, but obviously people who called Trump a racist and called him a misogynist and believed that he was totally unfit for office were the same people who are now giving him air cover every day and and enabling some of his worst behaviors. So uh, I don't think that, you know, there's an equivalency that I'm trying to draw. It's just to say that, you know, seeing politicians 
take a stand on something and draw a line in the sand and say, damn it, this is what we're for. And we're, you know, this, this is what we're worried about. And our children and grandchildren need to inherit a country that is X, Y, and Z. It's not new or totally uh, revelatory to see those people when they are suddenly in the majority or certainly even more so when they are, you know, party controls the the federal government Mm. to see them soften on those things or to just stop talking about them altogether because they're no longer a priority. And I think that that, that, probably manifests itself most obviously today with what you referenced, you know, the, the, the matter of fiscal responsibility. When Obama takes office and the Tea Party sort of rises from the ashes of, of the old GOP, you can hear all of these folks around the country. I went to tons of these rallies all over the place and you would hear them, you know, chanting about fiscal responsibility about debt and deficit and spending and how Obama was bankrupting the country. And if there wasn't a sudden course correction, we were going to go over the cliff like Greece. And look, you can, I don't need to tell you how things have changed over the, you know, the seven or eight years since you can go and look at the voting records of a lot of these guys who came into Congress in 2010, screaming from the rooftops about, you know, writing the ship fiscally. And they were saying and doing one thing during the Obama years and they are doing and saying something very, very differently now. And you can go look at their voting records for yourselves and kind of draw your own conclusions. And I think the only thing that anybody can conclude when looking at that is, you know, what's what's the difference? Well, the difference is that, you know, when Trump is president and your party's in control and you're afraid to vote against him because it means taking your career into your own hands and so doing, people suddenly are le- much less principled. Yeah. or at least much, much less vocal about their principles than they are when they're out of power. So let me ask you about uh, some of those folks. And the one that, that has clearly gotten the most headlines out of your book, the real kind of extreme you know, news in a sense that you broke – um, that, that's not phrased right. You, you know, the, the interview with Paul Ryan, I, I don't know if that was news that you broke necessarily. You broke a lot of news and you wrote a lot of interesting, incredible things in the book. But but the interview with Paul Ryan obviously got such great headlines. And and I, I understand, um, you know, and, and it captured, I think that Vanity Fair headline might have put it best in the headline that read, in new book, Paul Ryan admits he was a fraud all along in terms of the coverage of it. In reading the book, and and I read all those parts after having read the headlines and the news coverage, um, I I actually took it differently, slightly differently. And I found Paul Ryan, in your telling, to be somewhat of a a bit of a sad figure. Um, and, and that what he was talking about and the, the revisions that he was describing, um, I kind of felt was more like someone acknowledging defeat that, you know, that in almost, almost a defeatist view. So what was your take? I guess first is how did the Paul Ryan interview go down? Um, you know, how did you secure it and did it go the way that you thought it would? And, and two, has the reaction to what he said, was that your reaction or did you react differently? You know, yes. Yeah, so to the second part, uh, the Ryan interview was actually the second interview that we did for the book. I spoke with him uh, for about uh, 90 minutes or so, I guess, when he was still speaker. And I've covered Ryan for a lot of years, and I've interviewed him a, a bunch of times. So we have a, a good professional relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we did two book interviews. The first one was you know, in the fall of 18, I think, while he was still speaker. And then the second one was 
I don't know, four or five months later when he had recently retired. And that one was back in Janesville, Wisconsin, his hometown. And I guess when we sat down for the second one, I could tell pretty quickly that he had some things he wanted to say, that he was going to be pretty liberated in in saying them. Uh, And I guess to be perfectly honest with you, I was a little surprised at, at, at the uproar that his comments caused because when he was saying them to me, by and large, I was thinking, well, this is Paul Ryan. Like this is, the, you know, this is the guy who has been trying to suppress a lot of this stuff for the last two years and who wouldn't say it publicly. But I knew he was saying it privately and I knew that he had been saying it both publicly and privately prior to Trump winning the nomination. And obviously I detail in the book how he, you know, made this decision essentially that he needed to bite his tongue and turn a blind eye to a lot of the stuff Trump was doing in order to work alongside him and, and be his uh, – you know, chief policymaker as a sidekick to, to the new administration. So when when Ryan was saying those things, a couple of times, I guess I sort of arched an eyebrow and thought, wow, well, good for him. You know, he's finally being candid. But it didn't shock me because I just covered him long enough to know that that's how he felt. And I guess some of that is just being desensitized to the fact that a lot of politicians, especially in the age of Trump, are saying one thing in private and saying something completely different in public. Um, so I guess that's the first part of it. And then, you know, look, to the second part, look, Ryan, I think, was and is a bit of a sad figure, the way that you phrased it, because he was, in many respects, the, you know, universally viewed as the moral compass of the Republican Party. Uh, He was the guy who was resisting Trumpism from the very beginning. He was... I think doing more than almost anybody in the party publicly and privately to warn that this guy, you know, was unfit for office, that he was unethical, that he was immoral, that, you know, he was going to bring ruin on the Republican Party. And Ryan was out there saying that to just about anybody who would listen. And then I do think that, you know, he made this decision and people can question it, obviously, and they have and they will for many, many years to come. He made this decision that said, look, uh, you know, I can choose to hold on to my principles and my convictions and I can continue to speak out against this guy. But if I do, then I'm not going to be in this job very long. There's just no way it's going to work. Or I can swallow those criticisms and I can work really closely alongside him. And I can, in so doing, I can, I can do two things. I can, you know, write almost all of the policy for our party. I, you know, I'm going to have all of this contracted out to me from the white house because these guys sure as hell don't know what they're doing. And then secondly, I can have influence over this guy in a way that maybe helps him make better decisions. I can be a part of this sort of force field around the president, you know, with the likes of John Kelly and, you know, Rex Tillerson, HR McMaster, Jim Mattis, the, the part of this group of guys who felt like they were buffering Trump from his own worst impulses. And, Ryan felt that that was a no-brainer, that, that, that it was a worthwhile trade-off for him to make, and, and he made it. And I don't think he really has any regrets about making it, but I do think he feels a need to explain himself to people because anybody who's in that position who goes from being really well-liked and really well-respected 
I mean, Ryan's numbers used to be great. He, and he was really liked among, well-liked among Democrats, too, in Congress. It's worth noting. Like, when he became Speaker, there were a lot of Democrats hugging him on the House floor. This is a guy who was really viewed as sincere and genuine and a really decent fella. And suddenly, he becomes one of the most reviled figures in American politics. And I think that's a hard thing for anybody to, to, to wake up with every morning. And, and he obviously felt the need to kind of clear his conscience and get some of these things off of his chest. Yeah, it, it felt like that. It's interesting you say he, you don't think he had regrets. I felt, I felt regrets in what he was saying to you. I, I felt like you know, that was my interpretation of what I was reading was, was that that was, it was, yes, on the, you know, pro, you know, prospectively a desire to explain himself and retrospectively regretful at the recognition that, uh, you know, he was a key player, that that he had a chance to stop it and didn't. Yeah, that's fair. I guess I would draw a distinction between the big decision over whether to, you know, uh, basically join forces with Trump. I don't think he regrets that. I, I don't think that he regrets Ultimately, the decision he made on election night 2016, which was Mm. at that point, he basically said, I, you know, I need to shut up. I I need to I need to, you know, forfeit this role as critic in chief that I've been. I I, I have to be a partner to this guy. And if I'm going to be a partner to him, then I can't be out there criticizing him every day. And I don't think he regrets that decision. I do think within that, though, Chris, you're right. I think there are smaller regrets, things where he said, you know, on, on this occasion, I should have spoken up. On, uh, when he said or did this one thing, I know looking back that that was my responsibility to, to speak out against it. So it's not to say that he has no regrets, but I think that on the big fundamental question of, you know, the decision facing him on election night, do I do I shut my mouth and, and go to, to work alongside of this guy? Or do I continue speaking out against them and continue being the conscience of the party and let the chips fall where they may, uh, most likely leading to my ouster as Speaker of the House? I don't think he regrets that decision. And then let's talk about another one, um, Ted Cruz. Uh, first, you like Ted Cruz, don't you? You know, Cruz is a far more interesting person to talk to and spend time around uh, when he is away from the cameras than one might think. Uh, he, he can be, he can be funny. He's got good stories. He can be very insightful. And I spent a lot of time covering him over the years and I've written pretty harshly at times about him and in, in covering him. But personally, I actually do find him to be, uh, one, one of the few politicians that when you sit down and, and have a meal with him or have some drinks with him, you, 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 you find yourself rather enjoying his company because he's got a lot to say and, and a lot of great stories. Have you gotten a chance to ask him specifically, how do you support a man who went after your wife's looks, who implied your father helped kill JFK, and who cemented you in history as Lion Ted? Have have you been able to kind of get direct and at the heart of, you know, how, how can you how how are you able to do that? Yeah, actually, in so many words. And his answer on it is essentially boiling down to, look, I represent Texas in the U.S. Senate and Texas voted for Donald Trump. uh, And here I am trying to make lemonade. And, you know, this is not the situation I wanted to be in. Cruz was, you know, thoroughly humiliated by Donald Trump and obviously felt so strongly about that humiliation that he went to the convention in 2016 in Cleveland and 
refused to endorse the party's presidential nominee and got booed off the stage in a scene that I will be replaying in my mind until I'm on my deathbed. It was just one of the more remarkable things I've ever seen in politics. And Cruz felt that strongly about Trump, that, that he went to Cleveland knowing the risks that were inherent to his decision not to endorse Trump. But he felt that strongly about it. And then, you know, we talked earlier about political opportunism. Look, Cruz, uh, after that incident, he's got people in his ear saying, look, Ted, this guy's going to lose in November. And then there's going to be a wide open primary in 2020 for the Republicans. You are going to be one of the early favorites because you just finished as the runner up. Yeah. And you don't want people blaming you for Trump losing. You don't want people looking at you for the next four years and saying, well, you're one of these damn purists who held out and refused to support Trump. And when he lost by this narrow margin to Hillary Clinton, you know, you're responsible for it. And so Cruz said to himself, all right, look, I'll I'll die. Uh, You know, I don't need to die on this hill. I'll swallow my pride. And he came out and endorsed Trump. He didn't really want to, but he did. And obviously, when Trump wins, then Cruz is really in an interesting position because they still have a really, really contentious personal relationship. Yes. And it goes both ways. Uh, Cruz feels a great deal of anger still toward Trump. And Trump really still has a, a bit of um, I guess I would characterize it as as a bit of healthy fear for Cruz. Tr- you know, Cruz is the only guy that's ever beaten Trump. And, and, and that does not escape the president. When you talk to people who have spent time around the two of them together, they will tell you that there's sort of this very, you know, palpable tension in the air whenever the two of them are together, that that they've, you know, they've they've gotten along on certain things and they have forged this kind of uneasy alliance in, in some respects, but that there's not any love lost there. And, and those two guys understand exactly what went down between them. But Cruz ultimately realized that, look, this guy's the president. We've got a unified Republican government. There are certain things we're going to fight for here that I'm really invested in seeing passed because Cruz is a true believer. He's a, he's a very conservative guy. And so he said, look, I, I need to I need to swallow my pride here and I need to you know help get this agenda passed. Oh, and also I'm up for reelection in 2018 and I can't afford to alienate the president's base of supporters back in Texas because I'm going to need these people to turn out and vote for me if I'm going to hold on to my Senate seat, which he did by a very narrow margin. And my guess is that if Cruz and Trump had been at loggerheads with one another during that 2018 campaign cycle, then there's no way Cruz hangs on to that Senate seat. Any response to your offer to get Cruz and John Boehner together for a bottle of wine? Not yet. I'm working on it, though. <laughs> I'm working on it, man. We could. It, it would just be magic. I, I, there are a few things in my political career that I would like to achieve more than getting the two of those guys together over some bottles of red. That would be a good time. Could you imagine what the live stream would get you? Oh, it would be magnificent. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, podcast, pay-per-view, whatever. What, oh, no. Yeah, you said pay-per-view. <laughs> that was a funny line. It would be a great pay-per-view. Maybe a UFC. We'll do a steel cage match. <laughs> right. uh, two, two questions to, to close out the conversation because there's just, I mean, there's so much to talk about and, you know, so many of the stories, the 10-inch knife blade that, that Don Young held to John Boehner's throat, Meadows get, Mark Meadows getting down on his knees and begging forgiveness from Boehner after plotting against him. Um, I, I mean, your coverage as well of Trump's speech at the Iowa Freedom Summit in January 2015, reading that, it, it made me rethink that anyone hearing that speech could not be surprised by what Trump did coming down the escalator uh, just six months later in, in Trump Tower. Um, there, there's just there's a there's a ton um, to your book. Two two big questions, one kind of looking back and, and one looking forward. 
Um, your book obviously suggests that the traditional GOP, the traditional Republican Party, is, to put it mildly, in collapse. It can, and, and that, you know, so does it exist anymore? Can the party recover? Or I guess to quote Don Meredith, is it time to turn out the lights on the traditional Republican Party? Um, that party's over and the party of Trump is what exists. So I subscribe wholeheartedly to the Karl Rove view of politics, uh, that nothing is permanent, that all of this is cyclical, that there are durable trends. And sometimes durable can mean, you know, 30 or 40 years, but that nothing is permanent and that everything winds up sort of coming back around. And that's true, you know, of, of Trumpism in many ways, which I say in the book, like this, this appeal to, to nationalism, you know, economically and otherwise is not in and of itself new at all. I mean, Trump tapped into something that, that's been around and that's been percolating for generations. So I do think that while traditional republicanism is hibernating right now, I certainly don't think it's dead. I, and, and I do think that there will be a post-Trump GOP, and it's going to be a really, really ugly, painful process for a lot of Republicans who are going to attempt to, you know, pick up the pieces and put this thing back together and 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 What's going to make it especially hard, I think, Chris, is there, there's going to be a recognition that the the voters who were ignored by the old Republican Party can't be ignored anymore. That that's that some of Trump's lessons are actually quite valuable in in understanding that you know populism, uh, while harnessed and channeled the right way, can be really effective. And and you need to make sure that you are engaging with people who don't just go to Chamber of Commerce dinners and, and hang out at the country club and who have big fat 401ks, right? Mm. Like there, there, there is this broad swath of voters that are culturally conservative and that want to vote Republican, but who felt like they had been marginalized by the old elite GOP. So I do think that there is a recognition that you have to incorporate some of Trump's appeal into whatever the next iteration of the party is, but you also have to marry it with a much broader appeal in terms of you know, who is our coalition? Politics is a coalition business and the country is rapidly diversifying. We, we touched just briefly on the demographic transition that I talk about a lot in the book. But, yeah. you know, you cannot mathematically, this is not, a, you know, a statement of opinion. It's just mathematic reality. You can't win elections uh, in, in the very near future in America by capturing, you know, 25, 26, 27 percent of the Hispanic vote. You just can't do it. It's not going to work. And so, as we've seen Republican states like Arizona and like Texas basically being pushed into near toss-up category now in some of these big statewide races, you know, Republicans have to understand that if they lose a grip on a couple of those states, uh, throw Georgia into the mix also, they're toast. I mean, they can't win elections. Uh, right. It's That's game, set, and match, especially if Texas goes. Forget about it. I mean, Texas is, is your cornerstone on the electoral map. So, there is an acknowledgement already among some of these smart, ambitious, next-generation Republicans who are looking to 2024 and beginning to maneuver behind the scenes that they have to do both, that they can't just abandon Trumpism altogether, but that they certainly need to discard with some of the darker, uglier elements of Trumpism if they are going to become a big tent coalition party.
So let's end with uh, the question of elections and the question everyone wants to know on the left and the right. Can Trump be beat? What are the required qualities for the candidate who would beat Trump as you see it from your reporting and, and how you see uh, the state of, of the party? And, and, and do you see that candidate, that Democratic candidate out there today? Well, with the caveat that we should all be out of the prediction business after November 9th, 2016, I want to say a couple of things. Trump can absolutely be beat. You know, he had such an incredibly fluky victory in 2016. And that's not to be dismissive or or disrespectful at all to the president. It's just a fact. Uh, when you think about somebody who lost the popular vote by three million and who won on the margin of three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and those three states by a combined total of 77,744 votes, that is not some sort of a mandate victory. That is, that is not a statement victory. Donald Trump discovered this inside straight, uh, a poker term that's been used a million times, but it's it's apt. I mean, he, he yeah. really caught lightning in a bottle here in 2016. And it's not to say that he can't do it again, but... If he is going to, uh, Trump has to be aware that in trying to mobilize some of his base, some of these, you know, core cultural conservatives, blue collar, more rural and exurban working and middle class voters who love the president and who in many cases will respond to his appeals to emotion and his appeals to, you know, certainly in some cases, some of the, the xenophobia and the attitudes around race. In doing that, the president is mobilizing some of his base, but he's also alienating some of these suburban moderates who, who have voted Republican for 40 or 50 years. And they are increasingly turned off by, by this rhetoric. And, and we see it in polling. We see it in, in the exit polling and in some of the micro-targeting done by the campaigns. There were a lot of suburbanites who voted for Trump in 2016, many of them holding their nose because they didn't like Hillary Clinton and they wanted tax cuts and they wanted deregulation. So they reluctantly pulled the lever for Donald Trump in 16. But then a lot of them, they went and pulled the lever for a Democrat in 2018. Mm. And that's why you saw Democrats take back the House. They flipped dozens of these suburban-based seats all across the country. So Trump has to be really, really careful not to antagonize needlessly a lot of these sort of new swing voters, these 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 fiscally conservative and, and, and socially moderate voters who are in the suburbs, who are traditional Republicans, but they're beginning to feel like they don't have a home in Trump's Republican Party. That is the danger for him. And I think the danger for Democrats is that they could snatch you know, victory from, from the jaws of defeat, or no, excuse me, I think they would be snatching defeat from the jaws of victory yeah, in this scenario. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're at real risk of doing that if they play into the president's hands and nominate somebody who is well to the left of mainstream American thought. Obviously, Democrats want to fire up the base, but the base is already fired up. Trump is doing that for them. Democrats are going to turn out to vote in big numbers, much bigger numbers than turned out in 2016, because there was no enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump has in his first term generated lots of enthusiasm on the left. And I think the mistake for Democrats would be to nominate somebody who scares those same swing voters I was just talking about, because if they break away from Trump, even at a reasonable clip, I think it's going to be very hard for him to be reelected. But if Democrats nominate somebody who scares the hell out of a lot of these independent voters and a lot of these moderate voters who feel like they don't have a home in Trump's party, look, he wants to paint the entire Democratic field as, you know, a bunch of socialists. And he wants to put socialism on trial. And in fact, 
a lot of the folks in the Democratic field aren't all that progressive. They're sort of pretending to be because they need to get through a primary the same way the conservatives pretend to be, uh, Republicans pretend to be more conservative to get through a Republican primary. But if they wind up nominating somebody who actually is that progressive, who wants to take away health insurance from 150 million Americans, who wants to cover millions of undocumented immigrants with their health care plan, et cetera, et cetera, you go down the line. I think that that is the risk for Democrats, because I think a lot of Americans are not ready for that bold of a step to the left quite just yet. Tim, thank you. Thank you for your time. And, and I mean, the book is just important and engaging and entertaining and uh, so good that it almost made me, as a Chicago Bears fan, feel bad for you that the Lions uh, did so poorly last year, as you write about, I think, uh, that was in your acknowledgments. But, you know, I almost feel that, but in the end, not really, not so much. But almost. I did like well, the book. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad I could at least get you to try and you know stand in my shoes for a minute there and uh, think about <laughs> this is the dark ages for Detroit sports, unfortunately. Uh, but, but thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate the discussion. That was my conversation with Tim Alberta. My thanks again to Tim for joining and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.